You know, there's not much of a hotter sort of Christmas tradition going on these days than the proliferation of the Hallmark Christmas movie. For those of you who are way out of touch, you may need a little primer on this. It all seemed to have started sometime uh, in the mid-1990s when uh, ABC Family had sort of kicked off its 25 Days of Christmas craze that produced classics such as um, Holiday in Handcuffs, featuring Melissa Joan Hart kidnapping young Mario Lopez while he steals her heart. Of course, at Christmas time. But as time went on, ABC Family decided that it would sort of uh, move more in a teen direction, so it sold its Christmas franchise to a group called Crown Media Productions, who started uh, billing Christmas movies that now uh, occupy your television. Um, And what was interesting about these is how much the phenomenon is growing. Uh, Two years ago, it turns out that they were uh, garnering somewhere around 16.2 million unique viewers to watch these movies which wouldn't be that interesting except for the fact that last year they garnered around 17.6 million viewers, this 16% increase, which in television terms is pretty remarkable. Everyone are watching these things. And, of course, this year is going to be even more, we assume, because they produced 33 different movies this year, which begs the question, how does a network produce 33 (laughs) movies a year uh, for their people to consume? Well, it turns out that... The production schedule of any given movie is never more than three weeks. I mean, they crank these things out, a lot of them during the summertime, uh, which means that one of the most expensive uh, prospects for the production schedule is the creation of fake snow, which, of course, you know, uh, when you're you're filming during the the dead heat of summer, you know, makes stars like Lacey Chabert sweat into her snow boots, she said. You can log that under phrases you never thought you'd hear from the pulpit at Christ Press, right? Now, for those of you who have no idea who I'm talking about, a category of people I like to call those who do not know a female, um, and you're wondering what these movies are about, I, I ran down an article that talked a little bit about like the essential elements of a Hallmark Christmas movie that every one of them will almost certainly have. There's seven of them. Number one, you can always count on the fact that there'll be that 1990s actress that you almost forgot about. Danica McKellar, Candace Cameron Burr, Lori Laughlin, all of your favorites, they're all going to show up here again, right? The second essential is that sort of a hot actor that you've never heard of, right? The sort of, you know, hunky romantic partner is always sort of plucked from obscurity, it seems like. Number three, you always have a town with a really dumb name. Um, in the Hallmark universe, you know, there's actually a town called Cookie Jar, Pennsylvania. Uh, Garland, Alaska, Homestead, Idaho, all take place in that, in that spot. Number four, there's always a failing family business. That's the spine of the story, you know? Somewhere out there, there's something going down with a family business. There's a widow or a widower, number five, in these stories. Uh, you know, if you, if you came to keep your heartstrings from being plucked, you're on the wrong channel because there's something emotional that's going to go on there. Number six, there's always a, there's always a supernatural element that enters into the story. You can count on the fact that there's going to be an elf or an angel uh, that somehow is going to play prominently into bringing love to this bucolic little town. Finally, the the writer noted that uh, it's also essential that you have lots and lots of white people uh, during these shows. It's a fairly segregated universe that exists in the Hallmark Christmas movies, but in their defense, they say that they're working on it. So we'll see about that. But here's my question this morning. Why are these things so popular? 
Why is it that even we in this room are consuming these things with the passion with which we are? Well, when you talk to the people at the Hallmark Movie Channel, the reasons they give are fairly, uh, we might use the word escapist. Uh, Michelle Vickery is the Executive Vice President of Programming and Network who wrote an article saying this. He said, entertainment tells stories about the human condition and where people are at in their lives. A lot of our competitors want to focus on the darker and the edgier and the topical and the fractured place that many people find themselves in. What we do so well is illustrate the other side of the human condition, which is coming together. We don't feel what people come to Hallmark for is to get another instance of how difficult life is. This is the time of year when people really want to feel good, feel like they're part of a community and part of a holiday season. Spend two hours with us and watch an original movie, and when you're done, you'll just feel better about yourself and the world around you. You see the point. The reason why I keyed on this idea is because it illustrates very clearly this definition of the word nostalgia, which if you look up means literally a sentimental longing or a wistful affection for the past, typically for a period or a place with happy personal associations. In other words, the key word there is a longing that's inside. And what I want to do is dive in a little bit to this word nostalgia and figure out why we feel this way and what's motivating it. Well, as it turns out, the etymology of the word can actually assist us here. It turns out that nostalgia uh, is a compound word that comes from two Greek words. The first word being nostos, uh, which means a return home. The second part of the word is algos, which literally translated means a pain. So the word is talking about the fact that there is a pain that is associated with the longing to return home to a place of familiarity, a place without the dull ache that only nostalgia can tend to bring out. It signifies that there's a loss on the inside, something that we're missing. It's actually where we get the word homesick when we think about it. And Christmas can just make it difficult. You know, I mean, you may have grown up in a time and a place where There were times when they were nowhere near the associations of love and affection that were present when you were growing up. You may also have grown up in a childhood that was so horrific that any talk of nostalgia just makes you sort of half gag in the thought of it. But regardless of whether you grew up in a dream or a nightmare, the pain of longing is still there, isn't it? The question that I want us to entertain this morning, though, is this. What if we were made for more? What if there's something essential to our humanity that longs for a place, maybe not in our waking consciousness, that knows that we were supposed to have more and that the nostalgia that we feel is, like I've been saying in weeks past, a memory trace. A memory trace inside of a distant, faint signal for a home that we know our souls were originally created to know. Well, as it turns out, the Bible talks about us in exactly that same way. There's an assumption in Scripture that man was created to know a sense of home, all of which began in the Garden of Eden, where our parents, our original parents, enjoyed uh, as a function of their lives before God a spiritual home. But of course, when they decide in Genesis chapter 3 to sin against this God, they pull themselves out of fellowship and alignment with Him And because that's the case, they pull themselves out of alignment with their sense of home. In other words, they become runaways, spiritual exiles from what they were made to know. 
And so their progeny, us here in this room, will always struggle with that same struggle. That our highest commitment is to our own happiness. But under it all, it really is a search for home. For some of us, it's a literal home. For some of it's the joy of family. For others, it's our children, or our career, whatever. The longing is still there. We're doing the series this month that I've entitled Redeeming Nostalgia because we're finding out that God's plan all along was to minister to an aching nostalgia by bringing His people home. How? Well, Luke gives us a picture of the thing that happened as God inaugurates His people's homegoing. How appropriate that Mary and Joseph are on their way home in the midst of this journey to participate in the national census. And their journey is a mere little bit of our own. So the question is, how do we deal with this longing? And what we see in this Palestinian countryside was God showing up to begin the process of bringing His people home. So Luke chapter 2 contains three ideas that give us a sense of how God's going to do that. The first thing is, He's going to give us a realization of sovereignty. Secondly, a rescue out of poverty. And thirdly, a revelation of glory. So first, we see a realization of sovereignty. You know, one of the first things that strikes you in this passage is how anxious Luke seems to be to root his story in actual human history. You get all kinds of detail about the fact that there was a Roman emperor named Augustus Caesar who issues a government order that ends up being followed by a guy named Quirinius, a local uh, governor who sort of enacts the plan. You've got Mary and Joseph who are actual historical figures from real places in real towns. You even get the directions that they take on their journey back home, for goodness sakes. And I realize this may sound mundane to you, but it is as we move further on into our particular era, and America secularizes more and more, you'll find people dealing with Bible stories in very different ways. There is a tendency among sort of a secularizing culture to look at these stories as sentimental morality tales. Stories with a moral that you might unpack and think that give you sort of a warm, fuzzy feeling, but whether or not they like actually happened is really beside the point. Why bother? But you got to understand that, that, that these writers want you to know that they're not making things up. Why do we know that? Because people who are making stories up don't talk this way. They don't provide the level of detail that they have. And someone typically objects. They go, no, 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 that's not true. I've read historical fiction as a genre before, and whenever I read those, they do exactly that. They'll take an historical period, and they'll write a a fictional account, but have like real historical events happening around it. And the answer to that is, yes, that is the genre of historical fiction. But you realize that that genre was never invented until about 1,600 years after the time in which these events took place. In other words, our response to a secular reading of these stories is just sort of inspirational stories is, um, um, it makes the most sense to see them as things that actually happened. That's what happened. But what I want to stress to you is this. In the midst of this story, you have this perfect union between freely chosen human events and divinely ordered interventions of God. They perfectly intersect at this point. In other words, you've got Caesar Augustus who's just enacting policy for the advance of his government. Uh, You have this guy named Quirinius who's just following orders so that he can manage his local region in the way that he thinks it's supposed to be run. Uh, Joseph and Mary are just a poor, expectant couple 
who are trying to sort of make it back to their hometown and stay compliant, I guess, with the authorities. But that's not what's happening, is it? That's not what actually is happening. Caesar Augustus has no idea that he is part of God's plan to heal the world. God is the one in the background motivating choices, motivating ideas, motivating action, even to the point of using a pagan, ungodly ruler to accomplish his own ends. They're just random decrees on a human level, but they are God's unfolding plan to lead everyone to the place he wants them to go. So what's the point? The point is is that Christmas is a divinely ordered event that took place in space and time, not an imaginary fiction of of wistful thinking. Why? Because God was stitching together all of the disparate events of seemingly insignificant lives in order to bring something about that was going to shock the world. Indeed, it would outlast the world. I mean, here we are, what, 2,000 years later, still talking about it, right? Now, I realize that for a lot of you, this, this, this rubs you the wrong way. You might, you might be a budding philosopher on the inside, and you're going like, mm, I don't like the idea that God is in control. How can he be in control and yet my choices be free? Ugh. And that, of course, is another sermon for another time. It's convenient when preachers are going to be like, I'm just not going to talk about that. <clears throat> Your burning question. But I simply would, would submit to you that there is something very comforting about the idea of God's sovereignty, whether I can put the philosophy together well or not. Because on the one hand, if I thought that my decisions just didn't matter, I don't think I'd get out of the bed in the morning. Because if God is already going to do what He's going to do, then why try? Right? But on the other hand... <laughs> If I thought that the universe was being run by pure human free will, I still wouldn't get out of the bed in the morning. Either because the world seems so hell-bent on destroying itself, or because I'm too afraid of choosing my way into a place of being beyond salvation. Either way, knowing that God is still in control and that he takes my choices seriously, though I may not be able to sort of put it together in my limited human mind, is comforting. It's comforting. On a personal level, level, you can feel the pull. Can't you? Can't you feel the pull of thinking, this can't be happening for no reason? Why else do we search for for meaning the way in which we do? God, why are you doing this? And he may or may not show you the answer to that question. But the knowledge that there is a purpose, isn't that comforting? So knowing that God is sort of, even in Christmas, showing me that all the things are happening in the exact right time and in the exact right way, it's comforting. Just like a Hallmark movie. So there's a realization of, get that in there. There's a realization of sovereignty, first of all. But secondly, there is a rescue out of poverty. Because you and I already know this, right? We know who the baby was. We know what the shepherds know now, that that baby was not just an ordinary child, but God incarnate, come to earth to set His people free. The plan that was announced, actually, in Genesis chapter 3 to Adam and Eve is now finally coming to fruition. It's happening. The biggest aspect of it is going to sort of inaugurate. So what do you expect this to be like? I mean, isn't your natural reaction to be like, okay, so there should be like a royal banquet hall, right? Uh, 
Are we doing a big parade? Like, is there going to be an explosion? What's going to happen? Nope. <laughs> come with us into a country stall. Or come with me into a field with a bunch of shepherds. That's where it's going to happen, in a crowded city where most of the rooms are taken up. So they have to head out to where the livestock are. She doesn't have a nice antiseptic clean room to give birth to her child. No, 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 no. This child is going to know what it means to live without, just like his parents. Isn't that shocking? It's shocking to see that God chooses to do his massive inbreaking in the world in a place that is the opposite of the opulence that you would think it would come with. Instead, he shows up to identify himself with the downtrodden. I used to tell college students that to show up to shepherds would have been sort of the, the, the cultural equivalent for us that would said, and there were some truck drivers uh, in, a, in a truck stop at night eating some greasy food. That would have been exactly what it would have been like. It's nowhere where you would expect a king to show up. What does that mean? Well, we got a friend, Duke Kwan, who's a pastor up in Washington, D.C., who posted this last Christmas, and I kept it. Because he says, if you feel lonely at Christmas, then the true Christmas is for you. Because we got Christmas all backwards. You know, Christmas was never meant, he says, and he goes through this list, to be the exclusive possession of the merry, with our pasted-on smiles and joyful hearts. It was never meant to be the exclusive possession of the holiday party insider. You ever pine to be at the right Christmas party this year? Or the exclusive possession of the religious who live their life out in Christmas with pious nostalgia, decrying why it is that they've put an X for Christmas. Or the exclusive possession of the homeowner, the people who can afford to have a fireplace and a Christmas tree. It's not the exclusive possession of those who are in love. You ever felt on the outside when there's no romantic interest for you in the midst of all that nostalgia? Or the exclusive possession of the wealthy, who have the financial ability to give expensive gifts to their friends and family, or even of family for that matter, who have a spouse and kids and 3.2 children and live in the suburbs. It's easy to feel on the outside if you think Christmas is that. But according to the original story, Duke says, Christmas grace is for the shepherd, a social outcast. It's for the magi, the religious inquirer. It's for Joseph, the, poor, the, the heartbroken and the confused. It's for Mary, the, 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 the poor and the powerless and pregnant out of, uh, uh, for no reason. It's Jesus, the refugee who's being hunted down. It's for wise men, the ethnic outsider, for Simeon, the sad and unfulfilled, and for Anna, the unmarried, childless, and widowed. Those are the people who occupy the story of Christmas. Don't you see? It's not for the privilege that we all live in day in and day out. And so it's as if the Christmas story is making the point that we've been seeing in Luke all semester long, that your brokenness, your poverty of spirit, not only is not a hindrance to seeing God's work in your life, but is actually a necessary condition for you having a relationship with Him in the first place. He starts His ministry in a place like this so that we don't forget it. So there's a realization of sovereignty and a rescue out of poverty. But finally, there's a revelation of glory. Don't be fooled. I mean, Christmas is still magnanimous. Like there's something that is over the top that is coming, and the world just is not ready for it. And the life quake that's sort of coming that the Bible's been building for makes me think that the angels in heaven were a little frustrated with God. (laughs) Wait a minute, what? (laughs) 
Like, no fanfare at all? Um, I mean, this thing that we have waited for you to do, uh, this gospel that we have longed to look into this whole time, (laughs) we don't even get to sing? Okay, the father says, you can go. But put your concert on for these shepherds. And it's as if there's something so massive and so explosive, (laughs) so dramatic, that heaven itself can't contain it. And it explodes in the night sky outside of Bethlehem, where in verse 9 it says that the the, the, uh, shepherds were filled with great fear. Yeah, no doubt. Because what they're having is an experience of glory. And it's always unnerving in the Bible when it happens to people. So much so that you begin to realize that revelations of glory as they occur in the Bible um, are what we were built to know. They're what we were made to experience. And as per usual, C.S. Lewis is going to be our guide here in his wonderful little essay, The Weight of Glory, which is getting a lot of press this semester, as it should be. What Lewis says is, is glory can be thought of in two ways. Number one, it can be thought of as luminescence. Something we can say is glorious when it shines. When you see it sparkle, when it catches your eye, that you can't help but look and be like, wow, when you see a shooting star at night, or you see a, a blood-red sunset or a beautiful mountain vista. But have you ever wondered why you stop and do that? Why does my heart react that way whenever I see those things? Better yet, let me ask it the way Lewis does in his article, because he says, have you ever found yourself standing sort of on a precipice of a beautiful scene, piece of scenery? Maybe it's a mountain valley laid out in front of you or something where you're just sort of overwhelmed with the bigness and the beauty of it all. He says, have you ever had that weird urge to like jump into it? <laughs> not, not jump to your death. That's a different urge. It's a whole different one. But like to get into the beauty, you know, where you just you want to take it inside yourself and make it somewhere inside. Well, human beings were created in God's image which means that that urge, that longing to sort of be in is part of knowing God. So last night I had a chance to see the wonderful production of It's a Wonderful Life by the Oxford High School folks. It was fantastic. I told you to get some press this morning, Lucas. It was so good. Y'all, please go to these productions. They are unbelievably well done. But while watching it sort of all go down, I was reminded of one of my favorite lines from It's a Wonderful Life where George is walking Mary back home and they're just falling in love on the way there and he promises her the moon, which is a weird thing to say, isn't it? I'll give you the moon. What would cause a young man to say something like that? Well, here's what he says. He says, well, then you can swallow it and it'll all dissolve, see? And the moonbeams would shoot out of your fingers and your toes and the ends of your hair. Again, on the face of it, that's a little weird. Why would you say that? Unless we were made for glory. Unless God said there's something inside of you that longs for that. Luminescence. But the second way Lewis says we speak of glory is fame. We talk about people who are glorious when they are renowned, when they're magnanimous. And that longing, therefore, is to be known deeply. To have people watch us as we pass. uh, To sort of uh, respect us. To be admired. That's true of all of us. It's especially true of this generation that's coming up, by the way. About a year ago, I read a statistic that had been done by some researchers who had said that one out of every four teenagers today believes that they will be famous by the time they're 25 years old. That's that's an actual statistic. (laughs) Let that sink in for a second. 
And I realize it's easy to kind of be like, oh, tis, 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 these teenagers today. But don't be too hard on them because the instinct is biblical to long to have fame. Why? Well, because God wants to make his people renowned. By the way, when you, when you combine my last point about poverty of spirit with this point about fame, you begin to realize why God takes it very seriously when you disrespect other people in his image. Because it's treasonous. It's treasonous against loyalty not to care and love and have concern for the poor. The problem is, of course, life is not glorious. It's not luminescent. We're not, we're not living at, lived out in fame. We're profoundly lonely. So who rescues glory for us? Well, the angels do and what they say. Look what they say. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. You see, the angels know something that's really hard for us to grasp. That is, you never get glory by aiming at your glory. You only get glory when you aim at His glory. It's when you give up your glory that you get glory. It's when you serve when you, that's when you actually lead. It's when you labor that you get to rest. In other words, until you orient your life that everything for Him is pointing to His glory, it's the only way you begin to live. If it's borrowed glory, that's the path. Paul will say to the Philippians that as they languish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So the Hallmark movie, Reunited at Christmas. Emily Ferris may or may not have told me about this illustration. She tells the story that sometime before her death, Samantha Murphy's beloved grandmother uh, wrote a bunch of letters to her family and requested them all to come home so that they could read the ones that she had given to her. Samantha apparently is a writer of children's books and has a, uh, is recently engaged, almost by obligation, to the young Simon. The reason why I say it's by obligation is because ever since her parents got divorced and her grandmother passed away, she's really worrying whether or not she can count on family. But what happens is, is the simple act of kind of walking through the traditions of Christmas from her childhood begins to kind of stir her confidence up again. And she realizes that even the hardest struggles can be overcome with her family's love for her. And so she gives herself and her future to Simon's attention (laughs) and affection. Sappy? Sentimental to you? Eh, Maybe so. But my question is, where do Hallmark movie writers get the idea of a story of someone coming from beyond the grave to exert influence to get someone to see where their heart's real home lies? Where'd they get that? And once they do, to be empowered to love better and to work at healing the relationships around them, where'd they get that idea? Let's let C.S. Lewis answer that question. He says, apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen only from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy. You ever feel neurotic at Christmas? And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all merits and also the healing of that old ache. Hey, um, 
In 2019, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about what we mean when we say that Christ's prayers wants to be a home for those who have found their hope in the gospel and a place of healing for the world. But I hope you're going to see it in seedling form now because we're unapologetically nostalgic here. (laughs) Because we think you're longing for home. And if we can actually extend that home through a handshake, a, a smile a hug, a simple how are you doing, that we can begin to construct because of God's Spirit a place of our heart's true home. And maybe discover something worth celebrating at Christmas in the meantime. Wouldn't that be great? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you guide us into that? Because honestly, Father, the things can close around us. The culture speaks to things that confuse us and distract us from what this is really about. But somewhere... In the tiniest little corner of the earth, you were doing something jaw-dropping that God would become a baby. You were doing that, Father, without even knowing. And so we pray that this morning you would be doing the same kind of work in in an old converted skating rink where we gather as your people to hear, to know, to understand that you are our only home. Forgive us, Father, that we have been runaways for so long. But would you draw us in this morning? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.